Welcome back to The Truly Other. The world is made of many different people with many different stories. But some people face unfair treatment just for being who they are, and that's not right. To learn more about gender, sexuality, and being an ally, I chat with Alexander Tay, a youth worker at Uga Chaga, a support and advocacy organization for individuals of all genders and sexual orientations. I'm Alexander Tay. I use he him pronouns. Um, I'm 25 years old <laughs> and uh, I'm a youth worker with Uga Chaga, which is a non-profit community-based organization in Singapore. Uh, we work with LGBTQ uh, couples, individuals, and families, and we've been around since 1999. So that makes us 21 years old, able to vote legally. Um, yeah, so um, my work with Uga Chaga actually began in April this year, just when CB uh, started. But um, I actually got to know Uga Chaga um, ages ago in 2012 um, because I um, had asked someone I knew um, about how to come out as a gay trans man and this person actually gave me a leaflet from Uwachaka and it was a kind of a step-by-step -step, um, way of how to come out, what things to consider before you come out and you know things to remember post coming out so that was actually something that really helped a lot. Um, subsequently I got to work with Uwachaka um, doing Pink Dot and also um, in other community events within another organization called the Purple Alliance and um, subsequently, you know, here I am uh, actually working where my journey began. So it's been really cool. It's such a powerful story. I mean, can I just say I am actually really pleasantly surprised and also motivated at the same time to see that um, organizations like yours, like Uga Chaga, actually exist. Because like before this, honestly, I never knew or even heard of... Um, that there were advocacy um, groups for L the LGBT community in Singapore. And to know that there are avenues of support is really just amazing to me. Thank you. Yeah, um, people don't really um, know. I mean, like you said, it's it's so hard to find affirming spaces for LGBTQ people in Singapore um, for many reasons. I mean, sometimes it's uh, a case of not knowing where to look, which is the most common uh, scenario and other times um, some community organizations um, unfortunately don't have the capacity to reach out to as many people as they can because um, LGBTQ organizations in Singapore actually aren't allowed to be registered so that actually holds us back quite a bit um, you know we could potentially have the chance to be um, supported by government organizations but because of how things are locally that's not going to happen and yeah, we just have to work with what we have. That's, that's really unfortunate. But, you know, we can trace the LGBT community, like, way back into history. Sure. But I feel like the advocacy has seen a huge leap in progress only sort of in recent times. Is it, do you think, the work of the social media space, technology, or...? Sure, yeah. Actually, um, it that has helped a lot in recent years, you know, with the with how accessible social media is now, it's um, really a lot easier to reach out to people and find um, people 
Well, the term that we used to use is people like us, right? So people who are also LGBTQ, heaps of spaces, heaps of accounts where you can go to to um, consume affirming um, messages, you know, meet other people like ourselves. And it's also a chance for people themselves to express their own views and to support others. Um, previously, you know, there's, so much, there's only so much that we can do at home in park, right? You know, not everyone can get a permit, not everyone can, um, has the capacity to stand um, up and do a public speech or um, hold, you know, peaceful protests in support of uh, the community. So social media is actually a really good way, as, as much as we talk, um, crap about it, right? It's actually a really good way to to do good work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, for those who don't know, I think maybe we should start by just establishing some definitions because this is like such an intricate place for discussion. So just starting out, really, what does LGBTQ stand for and how many letters are there in the acronym? Right, okay. So um, I think most people are familiar with just the first four letters, which are LGBT. L, it stands for lesbian, G for gay, B for bisexual, and T, and T for transgender. Uh, and then there's the Q, which stands for uh, queer, and it also can stand for questioning. And that's something that a lot of people don't know is that we um, acknowledge that the journey of discovering one's gender identity and sexuality can be quite, uh, quite a hard uh, task for some people and so you know and also some LGBTQ people go through that same phase of rethinking their sexual orientation you know some of them might discover that they are actually um, more comfortable with another term uh, or that their identities kind of shift over time because um, gender and sexuality actually is fluid it can evolve it can change um, depending on the person's uh, experiences as well. So we happily, you know, welcome them into our little circle. And there are lots of uh, other terms as well. Some of them are, uh, they include asexual, um, intersex, um, pansexual, and the list goes on. But LGBTQ is kind of like the all-encompassing term that is used to describe people uh, who have gender identities and sexualities other than straight. Mm-hmm. That's um, also the acronym that I think most people are familiar with. But you also did mention um, gender and sexuality. Is there a difference between gender and sex at birth? Definitely. So um, we, I think growing up, we kind of conflate the two because we're so afraid of saying the word sex. And and that's kind of like a, a pretty loaded term for some people because sex in itself is based on the genitalia you have and also your reproductive organs, right? So if you say something like, um, I'm male, that kind of gives away the fact that, okay, yeah, I have a penis, I have testes, but when we say I'm a man, that kind of takes away the, you know, disclosing that aspect of your body and and, and, uh, your genetic makeup. Um, But I... I think it's important for us to differentiate the two because while sex, as I said, is based on your genitalia and your um, reproductive organs, gender is your own understanding of who you are. So that can be separate from your sex assigned at birth. 
So just to give um, the audience maybe a bit of 101, when someone's sex assigned at birth and their gender identity match, um, so for example, someone who is born uh, male or rather assigned male at birth grows up to identify as a man and is comfortable with that gender identity, that person can be referred to as a cisgender person. However, if someone else, let's say um, a person who was assigned male at birth again, but then grows up um, identifying as a woman, that person can be referred to as transgender. And in this case, um, because this person was assigned male at birth, but is a woman, she can be referred to as a transgender woman. Thank you so much for making that distinction really, really clear. <laughs> I think that is that um, the way that these two sort of get mixed up, is it also because of like official documents and sort of terminology using gender more so than sex? Sure, yeah. Um, so for us in Singapore, I believe we still use um, sex on our... ICs and passports. So it's not so much of the legal aspect, I feel, but more of how we are brought up. Because when, let's say, you know, like thinking back to when we were kids, right? If, we, if someone says the word sex, that's like, e -e -e, you know, like that's, that's weird, that's gross. Um, let's use another word. And it so happened that um, I think the hot thing when I was a kid was Pokemon cards. And on the Pokemon card, they would have... Um, the gender of that specific um, Pokemon on the card. So I think that's when people started using gender to like describe, um, you know, sex. Uh, and, and that's where I think the confusion began. So a lot of the questions that I get um, are actually centered around, you know, are they the same thing? Um, why must we use different words to describe gender and sex? Like if they are the same, right? But then in the case of trans people or gender diverse people, that's not um, the case. So I think it's important to make that distinction really clear as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, gender identity and sexual orientation, they are often being described as a spectrum and not a binary, like the normal binary of, you know, blue or pink. And so... Can you tell us more about that? And are they the same sort of spectrum, like one category or? Or separate, right. Okay, so personally, and I think there's been a lot of other um, alternative views out there that kind of deviate from the whole spectrum idea because when you think of a spectrum, you think of two ends, right? So um, of a binary, basically. So I think the spectrum that you're referring to is based on like a male-female spectrum or a gay-straight spectrum and people who don't identify as either kind of being in the middle or more skewed towards one side or the other. But because there are so many um, identities out there that aren't necessarily um, within the binary, for example, um, a non-binary person might not identify as male or female, right? So their identity is not even, you know, on that sliding scale. It's out, It's on a separate, um, it's a separate thing of its own. So that, in a way, the spectrum is kind of 
um, exclusive to people who identify within the gender binary. So for example, personally, because I am a man, I would fit on that scale, but as a transgender person, you know, where am I, right? If we're talking purely about gender, then sure, I am further along the sliding scale towards that man extreme, but because of my unique situation, I don't fit in, let's say, someone else's definition of what being a man or woman is. So um, the same goes with sexuality, you know, like people, um, what we think of sexuality um, in the queer sense is, you know, the three main ones are lesbian, gay, and bisexual, right? And when we picture it on a scale, um, let's say lesbians on one side, gays on the other side, um, and then bisexual somewhere in the middle. But someone else would say, oh, the scale is kind of like straight on one side, gay on the other side, and then the middle is, you know, other identities. But that kind of, there'll be too many scales to envision in that sense. So I think one way that we can look at it is like our solar system, right? Lots of different planets, no one's really at one place at one time. Um, it's always shifting, it's always changing, um, but that doesn't make it any less real. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's, that's how I kind of envision um, gender and sexuality to be. I love it. I love that <laughs> analogy. It's really accurate. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I hope it's helpful for our listeners because that is just my thought. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We should get like it printed on like a, one of those motivational posters. Oh, definitely. Oh, actually, speaking about that, um, if anyone's interested, um, you can look up something called the Genderbred Person. So it's actually a really um, cute little resource that explains um, the whole concept of gender and sexuality really well. And it's something that you can print out to, you know, fill in yourself. There are examples out there of people using it. You know, if you're running a class on your own that um, is about gender and sexuality, that's a, it's a free resource, so you can find it um, online pretty easily. It's Genderbred Person, as in Genderbred, like Gingerbread, but gender bread. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I will link that in the description as awesome, well. Thank you. It's so diverse and intricate, right? This entire distinction. But how can we or a lay person better bring that into their consciousness? Mm. Well, the first thing that I personally did myself, because having grown up in this safe environment where male and man and female and woman are kind of tied together. Um, the first thing that I actually told myself was to stop thinking about people's bodies because when you look at a person, I mean, visually as human beings, um, that's the first thing we notice, right? How a person looks, um, if you are a person with sight, right? So once you take that away and you get to know the essence of the person as opposed to what the person looks like, you are able to um, understand them for who they are as individuals separately from um, you know whatever their bodies might look like whatever genitalia might, they might have and actually when you think about it like that right it's kind of creepy in a sense that we are thinking about people's like we are essentially boiling someone's identity down, down to what they have in their pants which is not right <laughs> right so yeah um, I don't know if that makes sense but um, it, it does 
helped me personally. Um, I do acknowledge that for other people out there, it might be a little bit of a longer journey because um, I have the very unique experience of being trans and therefore I do know what it feels like to have someone's perception of me be based on my body and even more so because they get confused with the whole um, trans thing as they call it. So yeah, well, it's something that you could try a little exercise of your own. I think that's really good advice. And now that you mention it, I do think that that's what happens, you know, like from a young age. And I think it's probably the association with color also. Yeah. You know, and the way we dress yeah, up, yeah. it's just all linked together. Exactly, yeah. And then suddenly you feel like you are not belonged in, in a body that's assigned to you. And that's so difficult probably because of this association. Yeah. 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 And Trans Day of Remembrance actually just passed. And so mm -hmm. I think a larger question is what that difference is. There is the term transgender and there's the term transsexual. Yeah. Yeah. So could you explain that difference? Sure, of course. Um, so transgender is a term that's used to define um, a group of people or other people who um, gender identities and their sex assigned at birth don't match. So, um, and it could also refer to people with other diverse gender identities, like people who are non-binary, people who are genderqueer, gender fluid. Um, transsexual is an older term, and it was actually more, it was coined in the medical and psychological circles um, back in the day when the internet wasn't born yet. Um, so, and it's actually a term used by a lot of older trans individuals and it more specifically refers to someone who um, is in the process of changing um, their bodies through medical interventions um, so that it matches their gender identity um, more right so it's that feeling of congruence um, through seeking medical treatment that is important to them um, there has been some debate as to whether the term transsexual should be used um, today. But, you know, as a young person, the term transsexual has been kind of fetishized. You know, we, we see a lot of um, what is commonly called tranny porn um, online. It's, um, so it, it's, it's a very, um, it kind of pathologizes um, being trans. But at the same time, you know, I do acknowledge that I'm privileged in this day to have the term transgender um, exist and have it match how I feel so accurately. But people who are older than me, who didn't grow up in this time, didn't have that. And transsexual to them is the term that fits them the most. And so I don't think that there's anything wrong with the term. I just feel that, you know, we should visualize it as transgender being the umbrella term and then transsexual being something that falls under that umbrella. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. And, you know, now that you bring that up, I think it is so true that the the way that these two terminologies are being used interchangeably and the negative connotation that's tied to the term transsexual can be a disconfirming narrative for the trans community in general. Does that happen at all? Um, it does, 
So a lot of people leave transgender out of the gender identity completely, especially if they have in their own capacity um, completed their transition. So um, I just want to say completing someone's trans uh, a transition phase doesn't necessarily mean the same thing with um, everyone. So someone who could have gone through hormone replacement therapy, someone who has gone through um, any kind of gender affirming surgeries, um, could say at some point that, okay, this is all I would like to, my transition is complete. Um, other people may not get to that point for other reasons, or they may not feel that they need uh, medical interventions. And so their transition stops or ends when they come out as trans, either to the people around them, to society, or just to themselves, right? So it's all subjective. Um, but because of the negative connotations of the word, transgender and transsexual, um, a lot of people kind of abandon that term when they introduce themselves um, later on in their lives post-transition, um, just because it does introduce certain barriers um, in life. You know, if you tell someone that you're a man versus that you're a transgender man, I think a very common response is, oh, so what does that mean? Um, you know, you don't get the same uh, treatment once you tell people that you're trans. So for example, um, for me, it doesn't happen anymore, but previously, uh, unfortunately, I've had a few instances of people treating me noticeably differently once they found out that I was trans, um, even though they knew I was a man before, but now that they, after they knew that I was a trans man, it kind of, you know, changed the game. They started using the wrong pronouns, you know, for some weird reason. Um, so it, it is a sad reality that the term does bring about a lot of um, issues um, for the person who's going through that experience. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's something to be ashamed of. Um, but again, I do acknowledge that everyone has the right to use words that best describe their identity. And if the word transgender or transsexual no longer fits that, then that's up to the person to drop it or say that, you know, it's, it's in my past. I'm really sorry that happened to you. I mean, that's just never, yeah. it's never logical to me like, how that happens. Sure, like, yeah. Is it like yeah, yeah. the bringing of that negative connotation into the consciousness for those people that suddenly it makes them like sort of think of that even more? It could be. Um, because sometimes it's not even like a, like a negative. It doesn't make them squeamish or anything like that, but it just makes them think, oh, well, he's not a real man. So that in itself kind of makes things very, actually not kind of, it does make things very awkward. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know we're like digressing a little bit, but like in the local, in the local context, right, I was wondering what are the legal and medical softs uh, avenues of support for the trans community because I mean it goes around right that it it's like not possible to change your gender or um 
So that's not necessarily true. And I was just talking about this earlier today, actually, with someone. Um, so some people are not aware that trans people can um, legally change their gender mark in Singapore on their official documents, except for their birth certificate, I believe. Um, however, we do need to jump through a lot of flaming hoops to get to that point um, because of certain regulations that require um, surgery to, um, to get your legal or your true gender recognized. So um, that, that's a big hurdle for some people because not everyone um, can afford such surgeries. Not everyone is medically fit to have the surgeries. And sometimes people just don't feel the need for medical intervention, right? That for them is, it doesn't affect how they feel. So your gender is as valid as it is when you're you know, going through uh, medical treatment or if you're not going through medical treatment, but local laws states that without these treatments, you are not ever going to be recognized as your true gender. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting to note. Um, I think that Uga Chaga actually recently completed an online survey of like local of the local LGBTQ youth. Um, what are some findings? I mean, and are there anything that would be shocking? Well, shocking isn't really the word, but it's, um, I would say these are issues that have been very pertinent throughout the years, but because this is, I believe, um, well, at least for us, this is our first youth survey um, ever. <laughs> and it's found that, you know, the top three issues that, uh, LGBTQ youth are facing right now are coming out, mental health, and family relationships. So, I mean, these are all things that you hear about, you know, from people around you. You know, when 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 my friends came out, these were issues that were particularly important to them. But it wasn't really on any kind of black and white proof, right? That these were issues. So I think the the good thing about um, having surveys like these is that it actually is proof, right, that these are actually things that people are going through. Um, You know, we also found that um, LGBTQ youth are actually highly interested in uh, programs and events with a high social element to it. So uh, we had a whole list of options for our respondents to choose from, as well as specify, you know, their... um, uh, what they would like to attend. And our top three uh, were befriending programs and copy sessions and youth peer support groups. And, you know, to wrap that all up, we also asked um, our respondents what their desired outcome was from, from all this. And the top one was, I want to support other LGBTQ youth. So... I think, you know, that says a lot about the current generation of queer youth. We have been so focused on trying to help this population, you know, and and they do need help because they are um, particularly vulnerable. They're in situations that um, don't necessarily facilitate that, um, 
a safe, you know, um, affirming journey for them. But we also forget what do you actually want out of all of this, right? Yes, they're getting help, but what do they want ultimately? And to know that they actually want to support other LGBT youth is so telling. Like they are already at that point where they are empowered. They want to give back to the community. So I thought that was that was so nice to see. I mean, it's nice to hear yeah. as well. It's so empowering, right? Like for the self and also for the community because it's like the exactly, sense yeah. of um, support within each other. It really, yeah. I think, raises the morale even though like it's different. And I think that's probably amplified by social media in a way. Definitely, yeah. Because then you're, you're like creating this, this space. It's really interesting. <laughs> so... Are there any issues that you found that LGBTQ persons experience more critically? And I, I mean, I'm looking at like job opportunities, education, you know, general safety. Of course, I mean, we don't hear that like stories of attacks coming up a lot in in the local context. Right. So, um, yes, fortunately, there are fewer reported cases. I just want to stress the word reported because... Um, just because we don't see it on the news doesn't mean it's not happening, right? But of course, that can't be proven. Um, but generally, I do find the even though there is a lot of discrimination um, against LGBTQ people in Singapore, it's often covert. And so the physical damage um, to a person isn't... Um, it's not really a concern here, but that doesn't mean that harm isn't being done, right? Um, so... Uh, like you rightly pointed out, job opportunities, um, education, there are gaps. Um, so there have been reports, these are US um, or reports in Australia and the US that say that LGBTQ are a lot less likely than their um, cisgender uh, and straight peers to complete the education um, because of the bullying that they experience in school. Um, with regard to job opportunities, you know, in Singapore, there isn't any uh, law that protects us from being discriminated against um, unless it's within that specific workplace. So I know a lot of um, multinational corporations, um, fortunately, do have anti-discrimination policies. However, in local settings and local companies, it is not so much of a thing, I believe. Um, and so even during interviews, you know, especially for people who um, are trans or gender non-conforming, they, there is still stigma um, against these people. And sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's really overt. Um, but because there's no way that these people can be protected, we can't accuse these employers of um showing discriminatory behavior. And so it gets pushed under the rug. No one talks about it. Um, if people talk about it, it's hush-hush, you know, within our social circles. We complain, we cry, but then that's what we have to live with. Um, you know, and, and healthcare is another big one. Um, we, have, we hear stories about gay couples not being able to be together in intensive care units, you know, in the hospital. Um, they're not really allowed to visit 
in some cases because they're not uh, legally recognized as partners. Um, we hear stories of transgender people being turned away at the GP, you know, for trivial things like a cough and a cold because the doctor doesn't want to treat them because they are trans. Um, again, you know, this boils down to not having the necessary policies and laws to protect LGBTQ people um, when they want to get basic care, you know. So in a sense, our rights have been denied of a lot of the people in the community because of, you know, bias and prejudice. Yeah. And it's, it's sad, but it almost feels like a lot of this is very subtle. And yeah, it's, it's like, it doesn't happen right in your face, but it, it, it happens, you know, almost on a daily basis. And it almost feels to me that like, it's almost impossible for LGBTQ persons to make their real sort of authentic identities known or, you know, be able to live their best selves if they want to get by comfortably in life, right? Hmm. Yeah, getting by is is a, a big theme, you know, just managing to make it to the next day. Um, you know, as, as dramatic as it sounds, it is still an unfortunate reality for um, LGBTQ people who have been turned away by their families, by their trusted friends, um, not being able to finish school because of the immense um, bullying that they face. You know, they don't want to go to school and they, then they can't finish school, they can't do their O-levels. You don't finish your O-levels, you can't move on to higher education, which Singapore does place a very high emphasis on still, I believe. Um, and then they can't get jobs that, you know, help them to get by comfortably. And so it's a vicious cycle of just not being able to access what we know are basic rights. But yeah. Yeah, it feels like it just piles up. And you know, a lot of our identities are like, mm. um, they don't exist like mutually exclusively. They, they sort yeah. of intersect. Sure. Right. Yeah. And and so when other factors like class mm. or race mm. or uh, even organized religion comes mm-hmm. in, it I think, I feel like it impacts that, those experiences, does it? Definitely, definitely. So... Um, as it is, you know, we all have such unique experiences, whether you are LGBTQ or if you're cisgender or heterosexual, everyone has their own stories with the experiences that they, they have, right? Um, you know, in Singapore, there is still a large issue of minority discrimination, um, even though it's not, um, there are laws to protect minority races from being discriminated against. Um, everyday instances like, you know, people not wanting to get into the lift with their brown neighbours, you know, people who, um, like casual racism, right, is what we call it, um, just snide remarks that don't really amount to anything, but they do kind of sink someone's morale. Um, so, you know, I am privileged, I do acknowledge my privilege as a Chinese um, person in Singapore, even though I do face double discrimination as a transgender person and as someone who is gay, 
I'm not targeted for my race. I don't have the experience that a gay, trans, Indian, maybe Muslim person might face. You know, um, when all those are paired, like the multiple levels of discrimination can get to someone. I mean, as it does with, with anyone, right, that you would expect. Um, it also, you know, limits a lot of our ability to access the things we need, right? So let's say um, someone who is gay and trans and Indian might be experiencing homophobia, transphobia, racism in the workplace, right? That shouldn't even need to be a thing, but the unfortunate reality is that all those things about that person are being used against them. It's not something that you can help. You can't help being gay, you can't help being trans, you can't help your race, right? Um, it, it does impact a lot, and, and it also says something about privilege, right? You know, um, we think about what is available for us in Singapore. We fortunately have a pretty um, solid education system compared with the rest of the world. Um, but, you know, for let's say someone who is uh, like a, a trans person who is born into a rich supportive family and a trans person who is born into a, maybe a poor, not so supportive family, that already puts them at a very large, um, you know, it makes a lot of difference with the when it comes to the experiences that they face. Um, so yeah, I mean, there are so many scenarios in which um, people can experience different things. So it's impossible to list them all. Um, but you know, you are right in, in saying that all these intersections do play a big part in the experiences that we that we have as individuals. Yeah. And so, I mean, I'm just thinking back at like how the um, opportunities, sort of job opportunities are limited already. And I feel like for um, people in the minority community, those are already limited. You know, I remember seeing once on a job at, like at post at this thing that um, one of the requirements was the ability to speak Chinese. Mm. And I feel like that's like subtle, subtle racism, like enforced. But <laughs> it is, yeah, yeah. And I feel yeah. like when the um, members of the LGBT community who are also minorities mm. will then experience these at a much larger scale. Definitely, yeah, because they are being discriminated against for being of a certain race. You know, they are gay, they are trans. Employers will be like, all this is going to affect our business. So we don't want you. But I mean, you and I both know that who, what someone looks like or how someone identifies or who someone loves doesn't have, doesn't say anything about our ability to do a certain job, but that's how things are right now, right? And it, it definitely sucks. It's something that we need to work on. Um, but first, you know, like by you doing this, um, podcast series and by getting people to talk about the different issues it raises awareness and only when we have awareness and we you know actually that just the fact that hey this is a thing we need to do something about it right yeah yeah 
Thank you so much for like saying that because I mean, normalizing these conversations are so important, mm. right? I, I yeah, mean, the more right. we avoid a, a problem, the is like the more space we are giving stereotypes to breed in a way. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, going into the intersectionality of these issues, mm-hmm. we hear a lot like in uh, sort of US media that things like conversion therapy exist. Mm. And I remember seeing it once um, before, but is it real mm. here in the local context? Um, so yes, there are conversion. I won't say therapy because there's nothing therapeutic about the whole experience. So um, we have been referring to it as conversion trauma uh, because that, that's what that's what people um, have been experiencing you know, out of all this. It is trauma. Um, so... Yes, unfortunately, it is very real here. It is not often advertised, um, but from what we hear, these um, so-called services <laughs> do exist in uh, in the local context. Um, just not as it's not as widely advertised as it is in the US. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah, you're right about pointing out the term conversion therapy. Like, we should stop saying that. Like we should strike that out of the vocabulary totally, honestly. <laughs> like, yes. I mean, how do I yeah. mean do members of the LGBT community who go through that sort of trauma? And I feel like sometimes mm. it's um like a decision that maybe their parents or their families made for them, and so it's it feels like they don't have mm. the autonomy. But how mm. can they find support for, to recover from that? Actually, that is a very tough question. Um, so personally, I'm not part of any organized religion. Um, not that I don't support it or that I'm against it. Um, I just don't have that experience of um, being in a congregation or um, fortunately, you know, um, I haven't gone through conversion trauma. Um, and there is an added layer for some people who chose to go through these services on their own in a you know last ditch attempt to to find solace uh, in themselves. Um, but as we know, conversion trauma doesn't work. It's it's been scientifically debunked um, as ineffective. Um, so you know it a lot of issues can come out of it, and people experience. Um, trauma at certain degrees. Um, it varies from person to person. Some people fortunately get out of it um, less scarred than others, but um, I would boil it down, and this is for a lot of cases of trauma, it's important to have that supportive group of people that you trust um, to you know, be there, to listen to you um, as a hand to hold, there's a shoulder to cry on. You know, when you're going through it alone, everything seems so much less um, bearable. Um, You feel like you can't, it gets very overwhelming for a lot of people and understandably so. Um, But by having, as a start, you know, a group of people that you can trust, they might not be friends, they might not be parents, you know, they can be your um, trusted colleagues, they can be people that are part of a support group. When you have those people around you that shared experience or that comfort of having 
that you know presence that reassuring presence can make such a big difference i believe it really is like the the community spirit. I think it goes back to that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that's yeah. it's why like your organization and organizations like yours are so important. You know, mm-hmm. especially for oh, some people who are already experiencing so much like so much in their day day to day lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I mean, we always say that Asian societies are not ready for change, mm. and. Mm. You know, given your experience, to what extent is this um, culture used sort of as a validation for all these different forms of prejudice? This feels like a social studies question. <laughs> I'm being transported back to my, my uh, what is it, source-based questions or the essay <laughs> question thing. Oh, this is, but it's good though. Thank you so much for, for asking that because I think that's a really important um, issue and it's becoming there's more light being shed on it now. Um, so for those of you who know Singapore history, um, we were colonized by the British in the good old days when Raffles was here, right? Um, so even after they left um, post-World War II, they left behind uh, the fantastic present of 377A. And 377A is a section uh, in our legislation that criminalizes the um, consensual intimate acts between adult men. So essentially, you if you are an adult man having consensual sex with another adult man, it's illegal, right? Um, that that's what um, it is. Uh, so <laughs> recently, this has been used as kind of like to, to defend um, the progression of LGBTQ rights in Singapore. And there have been arguments that says, well, this legalizing um, or rather repealing Section 377A is giving in to Western influence. You know, we are an Asian society. Um, but actually, 377A was a result of Western influence, right? Like they gave us the present, um, you know, it, it's, it was um, purely because of 377 that we are in this situation right now. Um, you know, I think this is something that can be argued for days and days and days, but it, it really does boil down to what is convenient. And this is my in my personal opinion uh, um, that preserving Asian values is a convenient excuse for us to keep these um, you know archaic laws um, and to prevent the prevent prevent the progression of of our um, LGBTQ rights because it's easier for us to brush it off as saying we're not ready rather than to actually actively go about um, introducing policies or you know, um, state-supported education that will nurture a more inclusive environment. It's it, it's convenient, right? It's it's just it's just the way it is. Um, I can't argue to what extent because I'm sure there are a lot there are so many more layers to it, um, which uh, will need another ten sessions, maybe Victoria, <laughs> to cover them all. Um, but yeah, I, that's that's the situation now and I hope that answers the question.
a sense. It does, it does. And it seems to yeah. be aversive prejudice to me because it's like saying, mm-hmm. like, you don't want to support, like, um, marriage between gay men, for example, to protect mm-hmm. the sanctity of marriage. You know, you hear that so much, like, in... in yeah sort of um arguments from that side of things yeah honestly (laughs) doesn't like make sense because then there's a lot of sort of individual well-being that's being um sacrificed exactly yeah yeah exactly you're denying people of you know being legally recognized as partners you are denying someone's right to be physically intimate with another consenting adult you are denying someone of uh, their healthcare, you are de- uh, denying people of their, you know, right to have children, even though they are legally, financially, you know, in a good emotional place to do so. So lots of things, right? But what do you know? This is Singapore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So okay, I mean, we're gonna like be treading into sort of um, difficult material here, but we do read about hate crimes against the LGBTQ community a lot. And we also hear very, very sadly about losing these individuals to suicide, to these hate crimes. And we, I mean, a lot of these cases don't happen here or really, I mean, we don't hear about them, I should say. I mean, does that mean that this prejudice does not exist in our society? or And if it does, how do we move forward from that? Hmm. Well, I think you and I both know that prejudice still definitely exists, um, even though there are different ways of showing it, I suppose. You know, in other countries, unfortunately, um, there are a lot of reported cases of hate crimes and suicide as a result of um, discriminatory behavior. Um, I would say, you know, like like we addressed before, there is a lot of covert um, discrimination happening here, and I think a lot of it is based on the fact that we don't have, or rather, we didn't have that exposure to um, issues of diversity and inclusion when we were young. You know, like the things that we learned in school stick with you. Um, Just like the lessons that our parents and our elders taught us as kids, um, they stick with you for life, you know, and it can be as simple as rubbing toothpaste on your mosquito bites or Zemba source everything, right? Even though we are old and grey and we know that, you know, there's something else that can be done, we're still there, you know, with the ex-oil, like sniffing away. Um, And likewise, you know, the bad habits and the... um, the behaviors that are taught to us at such a young age, um, even if we know they are wrong, uh, or we have some kind of inkling, but we we just do it anyway, um, it sticks. So when people use um, language like you know fact, tranny um, in schools, you grow up still using those words and you don't question it because that's a habit that was ingrained into you, right? Um, but when we hear stories, we learn more about what that actually does to a person. Sometimes people can take a step back and say, oh, you know, I've been saying this all this time. 
you know, that wasn't the right thing to do, how can I fix it from here? And, but, you know, they don't know that that's already the first step, you know, being exposed to that or going to look for the information themselves, reflecting on their behavior and actually asking themselves, what can I do from here on out? So, you know, I, I would love to say things like we should introduce um, LGBTQ education in primary schools, we should have inclusive sex education in secondary schools. Um, I can wish for that until my 100th birthday, and I don't know if it will ever come true. <laughs> but, you know, now that we have the internet, the glorious, glorious Google can help you learn so many things if you choose to go and look for it yourself. Yeah. So I think I think that's step one and the rest will follow. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right about that. I think um, a lot of learning has to take place in order for us to really like the general public, I guess, to to really support the community and reduce all these cases. It's like really just asking yourself and reminding yourself that words matter, you know, they can affect a person, even though, you know, we like to pass things off like it's um like it's just a joke mm, and stuff. Like no big deal, you know, no big deal. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean all, all of this is just going towards this idea of being an ally. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, what does it mean to be an ally and how can you really be an effective ally? It's not just like sharing posts on Facebook, you know what I mean? Oh, no, definitely not. Please, uh, um, <laughs> whoever's out there who's sharing posts on Facebook, but then, you know, the next day saying, hey, you know that guy, I think he's that gay, like, Donna. Um, you know, it, it really, you know that that is, but I won't say that that is an ineffective way of being an ally because, but I'll get to that later. Um, allyship to me is is being a friend. Um, you know, people I feel are daunted by that term ally because it carries so much weight, but it can be as simple as, you know, um standing up for your friend, you know, correcting people when they use the wrong pronouns or the wrong name, um, sitting next to them in class, um, having a chat with them, you know, like listening is such a big thing. We take it for granted all the time. But sometimes, you know, when people are with their LGBTQ friend and their friend is telling them all these things, you know, like their trials and tribulations, um, or the struggles that they're going through, the automatic response, I think for us as humans, we want to be like Bob the Wilder, you know, we want to fix things. But sometimes we can't fix things. And it's okay that we can't fix everything. What a lot of people need um, is a friend to sit there and let you talk. And that presence and that act of you know, being generous with your time already says so much. Um, for me, that is a really effective way of being an ally, you know, just being willing to learn, um, being receptive to everyone's different experiences um, and also making the effort to go about learning things yourself. Um, some people, you know, whether consciously or unconsciously, they treat their LGBTQ friends as their encyclopedias. So they expect them to have all the answers, but you know, I, a lot of us don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. 
um, I never will, but it means a lot to me when someone actively tries to do their homework. Um, if they have questions, you know, and I welcome questions, it is also a matter of how respectful and sensitive you are when you ask me these questions, right? So just taking into consideration the other person's feelings, um, I honestly, a lot of it is just being a decent human being. La. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that, that is how I feel. Um, yeah. Uh, don't feel like you have to look a certain way or act a certain way because you are an LGBTQ ally. You know, that can take so many shapes and forms. And I think it's also important to remind people, um, just like for us LGBTQ people, us sharing our experiences uh, or sharing that we are LGBTQ in the first place is a choice. Um, and it's a choice because sometimes we are not safe in certain situations, it won't be safe for us to disclose or share these things to certain people just because we might be in danger. And similarly for allies, um, if it's not safe for you to openly say, I am an LGBTQ ally, that's okay. You know, do things in your own capacity. So, you know, Victoria, like you were saying, sharing posts on Facebook, I'm not saying that that's useless. It's definitely not useless. Um, it's actually, you know, a really affirming thing for me still to be scrolling on my Facebook feed and see that, you know, oh, a secondary school teacher of mine actually posted something in support of LGBTQ people. Um, you know, it's nice when someone who I haven't spoken to in a long time comments uh, on my Instagram post or my Facebook wall saying, happy birthday, Alex. You know, even though that wasn't the name that they used to refer to me as, you know, small things like that um, do help a lot. So um, as wonderful as it is to see our straight cisgender friends on pride floats waving rainbow flags and being very rah-rah along with us, it also is, um, it's actually even more powerful to see the little things on a daily basis. Mm. Yeah. I think it's it's really great that you brought that up because then that means that like it has been sort of normalized already. Like it's been conf like the net it's like a very confirming narrative and that's that is what's really powerful, I think. So I mean what should we do if a loved one comes out to us? I mean, this is really like learning and moving forward. How should we respond? I mean, not that there's a script, although I'm not sure if there is a script, but like, how can we... No, no, there's no script. Nothing can ever prepare you for coming out. Nothing can prepare you for someone coming out to you. Um, but I think the first reaction does matter. Um, back in the day, there was a lot of... I think now, actually, not even back in the day, there still is a lot of fear around coming out, especially if you're a young person, because it can worst case scenario, parents might kick you out, parents might cut you off financially, parents might threaten to hurt you or can actually hurt you physically. Um, but, you know, coming out with itself, right, it doesn't change anything about the person themselves. They, the fact that they told you um, is actually a big sign that they love you and trust you enough to, to share such um, 
like an important thing, right? And so, um, well, recently I haven't had many people come out to me, but in the past, if someone did, I would just say, thank you for trusting me. Um, and I think that's one of the most reassuring things that someone can hear. I mean, having, having heard it myself, post coming out to someone, um, you don't have to throw them a big party. You don't have to make them a cake that says, yeah, you know, you're gay. Um, it, acknowledging the act for what it is, which is a sign of trust, um, is, is very important. I think if, if you um, have it in you at the time to pause and think and give them a calm response, I think that would be very helpful. Um, you know, I do acknowledge also that some coming up, um, or rather some people um, come out without you least expecting it, right? We can't always predict um, who will come out and when they'll come out, right? Um, but I think it's also important to remember that um, the person has told you a very important part about themselves. You know, they've shared something so important. Now it's a question of what you want to do with that information. You know, there are two ways it can go, right? You can just brush it aside and say, nah, you know, whatever. Or you can say, oh, thanks for trusting me. Um, tell me a little bit more about your journey. How has it been for you? Are you doing okay? Um, you know, are you getting the support you need? If no, um, do you want to look into that together? Um, you know, ask them to share about the positive experiences as well, because I think that's a big um, thing with us. Like we still kind of associate coming up with like a lot of struggling, a lot of um, sadness and stress. And while that might be true, um, there are still instances of like coming out being a very liberating process um, and a happy occasion. You know, some people have friends that they come out to and their friends are like, oh, finally, you know, like about time, when are you going to tell us? Um, and let's go, let's go celebrate. Let's go um, get, I don't know, some stickers with a new name on it. Um, you know, do you need me to help you with anything? And so, you know, Supporting them through the hard times while celebrating the good times with them. Perfect. I think that's what a lot of people want. Yeah. Yeah. It, that's really, really good. It, it, I think it sounds like it's being, um, like remembering that this this person is just this person and, you know, not anything. Um, and like their identity does not categorize them as anything yeah. else or anyone yeah. else. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I I am also conscious that uh people may struggle when their loved ones come out to them, um with a a their gender identity or sexual orientation, and you know, are there any coping mechanisms that you would say um are available to them? Um. Well, I think sometimes people do need a third party to talk to and that's completely fine um if the person who came out to you has the capacity to do so you know it can be um something that 
uh, you can talk to to them about as well. You know, just say like, hey, I, uh, when you're ready, um, can we talk about what you told me earlier? Um, you know, not to make it about you, but to have a discussion about how the two of you are feeling after this conversation. And I think that's also a really good way to like still emphasize the fact that you still care about this person. Um, you still love them. You still want things to work out. Um, it's okay to need time to digest things. You know, I, I do acknowledge that with um, the way that things are locally um, and with just some people's experiences in general, it will take time to get used to the fact that, oh, this person is no longer the person that I expected them to be, you know. Um, for some people, it is a loss. Um, but with that loss comes a new beginning. Um, so I think, you know, reframing that might also, might also help in how you um, cope the situation and approach subsequent conversations. Yeah, I th there is a lot of anxiety. I think with this, um, it feels like a lot of anxiety and a lot of like back and forth. Mm. Yeah, and a lot of effort needed, like to to move forward and and sort of um, yeah, for both both sides of yeah, the story. Yeah. yeah, and you know, for LGBTQ persons specifically, mm -hmm. how can they cope with the fear of coming out? It's not like everyone has to do it, you know, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, coming out is a choice. Um, do it when you want to. Do it when you're ready. Do it when you're safe. Those are the three things that I would encourage people to remember um, when they come out. You know, don't see it as a must because it's not. Um, it is still your decision. You... Yeah, exactly. So um, with regard to the fear of coming out, you know, that, that's such a hard topic to answer directly as well because everyone's fear is so different. Like for myself, I mean, I can speak from my experience. My fear was that I wouldn't be loved by my family anymore. Um, because I grew up in such an affectionate household, you know, we weren't, we're not typical Chinese people in the sense that we're very open with saying, I love you, we're very open with hugs, um, you know, for a long time, my parents still kissed me goodnight. So that was amazing. But after I came out, I was afraid that I would lose all those things. Um, for some other people, you know, the fear is being kicked out. The fear is being, uh, physically assaulted. By the people around them um so if i would say that you know time and this is cliche and some people are probably not gonna like hearing this but time really does help sometimes so taking a step back to think about um why you'd like to do this how you're gonna do this and when you're when you've weighed out the pros and cons of the situation um, it helps for me. I know it helped for some other people. Um, perhaps, you know, someone who's listening to this right now might find it useful as well, but I can't offer a 
one size fits all solution. It really does depend on the situation you're in and where you are in your journey right now. That's really powerful. And so for organizations like Uga Chaga, you know, you provide a lot of forms of support, but um, what are some avenues of support that you have available to the LGBTQ community and to the people around them? Sure. So um, we do have a face-to-face counseling service. So um, that is our main service, um, one-hour sessions for people who are LGBTQ. Uh, We do have uh, allies come to us as well, Um, parents or friends of LGBTQ people who use our services. Um, We also have a WhatsApp and email counselling service for people who may not feel ready for a face-to-face session yet. Uh, Just keep in mind that those services are not uh, run by professional counsellors. Um, some of them are, but it is a peer uh, service. So for if you want to talk about something uh, and you want to do it uh, more discreetly, that is uh, something that you can consider as well. Yeah. That's really great. I mean, it's just having that knowledge that there are people who are willing to talk and to listen to you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that does help a lot. Mm. And so just before we end off, do you have any words of advice for the local LGBTQ community, for um, their loved ones, or, you know, the general public? Well, to my LGBTQ uh, peers and and fellow Singaporeans, I just want to say that um, times are tough, but, you know, celebrate who you are because there is absolutely nothing wrong with being LGBTQ. Um, You are powerful. um, You are, you know, a shining light for a lot of people in their lives. Um, Keep being who you are. And I hope that you will all be able to live your truths um, in your own way someday. Um, To the general public and to people around us, I would just like to say, you know, keep learning, keep an open mind. Um, We need you uh, to help us make Singapore a better place for everyone, regardless of their gender identity or sexual orientation. Yeah, those are my parting words, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. It's really, really powerful. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So where can our listeners find you and Uga Chaka? Uh, okay, so you can find me on Ugachaka's side. <laughs> um, so uh, I'll just link you to, to Ugachaka's page. Uh, you can find us at www.ugachaka.lgbt. Uh, we are on Facebook, uh, Instagram, and Twitter uh, at Ugachaka. So just check us out there. Uh, you'll, you'll see my face at some point on those posts. Um, and hopefully, you aren't uh, appalled. <laughs> by the side of me. <laughs> so yes, uh, I hope I hope to see you all on our social media pages. Uh, please feel free to touch with us. As we Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Truly Other podcast. We hope you liked the show. 
Did you learn something new from our conversation with Alexander of Uga Chaga today? Share your thoughts with us on Facebook and Instagram at The Truly Other. Check out the links in the description to connect with Uga Chaga or learn more about gender and sexuality. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you at the next show.